Good morning. That is a um, perfect song for this morning and what uh, the Lord has put on my heart to share um, because uh, the passage we're going to read in Luke chapter 4, and you can um, begin turning there if you want, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, it's, it's familiar to us, but um, when I look around the world and I see the problems that are still in the world, and as I think, you know, next week or another couple weeks when we break bread next, Pastor Will will probably remind us again that the Lord has not returned yet. And you look around and you want him to return. You want everything to come back into the way it's supposed to be. And even when you look at your own sin in your life and you get discouraged with the fact that you are not what you were called to be in fullness yet, um, it can be discouraging. But this is the passage where um, as I've looked at it um, and, and meditated on it, on it through my life has given me encouragement, has restored my hope that Christ is, Christ is in control and that the world is coming to, um, to its rightful fulfillment where everything will be restored to God and everything will be perfect and at peace. Um, there's a theological term um, and it's called in Latin, don't get intimidated by this, it, it, it's called Christus Victor. And uh, you can probably figure out what it means. It literally means Christ the victor. And it speaks to the atoning work um, of Christ and emphasizes Christ's triumph over all the evil powers of the world. And through his victory, he also rescues his people and establishes a new relationship between God and the world. And in his um, article, or it's an essay entitled Christus Victor, um, and you can find it on the Gospel Coalition website, Robert Kolb uh, summarizes this term in this way. He said, by defeating the evil powers that oppose God, Jesus Christ rescued his people from Satan and established himself as the rightful king of the cosmos. I'll read that again. By defeating the evil powers that oppose God, Jesus Christ rescued his people from Satan and established himself as the rightful king of the cosmos. And this is um, a very good definition. This is, this is a concise uh, statement that helps us understand what is at the core of Christianity and uh, the central storyline of the Bible. And so keep this in mind as we uh, read through chapter 4 and, and I teach today. As this passage speaks in chapter 4 of how God deals with evil, how Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone triumphs over evil, and how the, the battle that he undertook fits into this grand scheme to reconcile man as well as all of creation to himself and for his glory. So let's go ahead and read chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he, and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, 
and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the promises held within that you, Lord, will um, restore everything back into yourself the way that it should be, Lord. And we pray this morning as we read this word that you would make this word live unto us, Lord. Give us ears to hear give us eyes to see what is written in your word lord and may your words find a place in our hearts lord and we pray this all in jesus name amen uh if you're a person uh who likes to take notes you can write down these three points that i believe luke wants to, s to see in this passage uh, the first one first point is it is written it is written and the second point is it is fulfilled. It is fulfilled. And the third point is Christ the victor. The person the Bible is written about and the person who fulfills the Bible, who defeats our ancient foe and reconciles all of mankind and all of creation to God the Father, and who is over all of history from beginning through creation, and until the end of time, and through all eternity, is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and Son of Man. And I give you these three points up front because um, I may not hit all of them in order, and if you, um, I may jump back and forth, and if you've ever had a conversation with me, you should come to expect that. <laughs> um, but it is written. It is written. This is a story found here in Luke's gospel about the Bible. And Luke's gospel, while it takes place later in the Bible, um, it's good for us to know where it fits in into the entire story of the Bible. And so I'll try and give a brief uh, synopsis leading up to this, but it's, it's good for us to understand that Luke wants to make this very clear to us, uh, the listener. At the end of his gospel, after Christ had written, risen from the dead in chapter 24, uh, Luke tells us about an encounter that two disciples 
had on the road with Jesus. Jesus concealed himself and is on the road from Jerusalem to um, the town of Emmaus. And the disciples are trying to piece together everything that has been happening regarding Jesus' arrest days before, uh, the puppet trial he went through, and the, his crucifixion which led to his death and his burial. And now they're hearing accounts that this tomb where he was buried is empty and that people have actually seen him, that he has been resurrected. And Jesus meets them on the road and explains to them, while incognito, he explains to them everything that had been happening up to that point and why it was happening. And he, and he starts talking through everything that was foretold by the prophets of old, and he explains, beginning with Moses, that means beginning in the very first pages of the Bible, beginning all the way back to day one, to Genesis, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So at the end of Luke's gospel, as well as, a, as in the beginning, we shall see he is, he's making the point very clear to us, the reader, that this story, this gospel, is part of the story, and that Christ is the fulfillment of all that had been written before. And he doesn't go into deep t- detail as far as everything that was uh, discussed on this road, but he's making it clear that this is not just one story that takes place at a moment in time. It, is, it, is, it finds its, its significance in the entirety of scriptures. So let's try, um, if possible, and briefly give a synopsis of what uh, this story is all about. We live in a world that was created by God to bring him glory by putting his eternal attributes, his greatness, on display. And scripture tells us God spoke, and that's all it took. Everything came into being when God spoke. And there's six days of ordered creation, and at the very end of the sixth day, he, he creates one final thing, and he creates mankind in his image. Mankind is created in his image to reflect him and to govern this realm as his regent and representative. And it's good for us to see that mankind is created at the end of the creation week. And we had no role really in creating the universe and the stars and and so on. Because it serves as a helpful reminder and an obvious reminder that although we are in the image of God, made to reflect him, we are not God. And all of creation was good. Mankind was innocent. And he was placed in a perfect environment, in the Garden of Eden. And he was given the charge to fill the earth, to be fruitful, multiply, fill it, and subdue it. And there was a test given. Mankind was on probationary status, if you would, at this point. Because even though he was innocent, he had yet to attain righteousness. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with giving someone a test to bring out whether or not they are worthy enough for what is about to be entrusted to them. We do these sort of tests before we interview someone for a job or even part of job reviews. And my my daughter just had tests last week to see if she would be worthy to receive the grade which she wanted and the credits she wanted from 
curved classes. So there's nothing wrong with that. We do test all the time, and I've often even tested my own children before I've entrusted them with something to make sure that they are ready for the responsibility that they are going to receive. And this test was heavily weighted, heavily weighted in Adam's favor and can be summarized maybe in this way. Adam, as the first man, from whom every single other man, from whom all of us came from, this first man, this representative of us all, was placed in this perfect environment, was created without flaw. And he was told, you can have full roam of this entire earth and enjoy it and subdue it. And it's all yours. You're going to rule over the creatures. You can enjoy every plant that comes from the ground. Every fruit on every square inch is yours, Adam. Except for this one thing. And maybe if you squint your eyes, Adam, you can see down there. See that little 30-foot radius? That one little spot there, the fruit of this one tree is not for you to take. And the simple reason, it's not meant for you. The simpler reason, uh, because God said so. (laughs) And if you've ever had kids... (laughs) when they're at that little age and they're always saying, why, why, why? You as a parent who knows what's best for them, who wants to bless them, who wants what's best for them, it's appropriate for you to say, you need to trust me because I said so. So God is saying to him, trust me. Don't eat of this. It is not meant for you. I want to bless you, but this tree is not meant for you. And when you eat of it, you will die. And while the test was straightforward obey this one instruction take god at his word and live while this test was straightforward there entered into the garden a temptation and and if you think about it a temptation is not the same as a test right again my daughter had finals week uh, last week right and she had a test to show that she was worthy of the credit she wanted to receive the temptation is is well not a test it's like well let's not study and let's play video games instead right (laughs) that's a temptation it's very very different from a test and we're shown um, in the very beginning of scripture what we're seeing in the very beginning of scripture is that what we see with our eyes is not all that there is in this universe and we are seeing that there's also something going on spiritual as well there's an ancient foe opposed to God, the serpent of old, Satan, whose name means deceiver, a leader of an angelic host who rebelled against God. And there is this cosmic battle taking place in the heavens and in the spiritual realm between God and Satan and his demonic host who rebelled against him. And we're told that Satan enters the garden when an opportune time came, um, when Adam and Eve were alone, and that's when most temptation comes, is it not? He placed a temptation before them, and he questioned God. And he said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And that's not what happened. And even if that wasn't what happened, she says, no, you know, it's just this one tree we shouldn't eat of. And 
Well, no. You can hear us thinking that, well, no. He didn't say we shouldn't eat of just one tree, but gosh, you know, Satan, when you say it like that, it, it, it does some, seem a little unreasonable. <laughs> and then Satan continues lying to her and going against what God clearly said. He says, you will not surely die, as God had said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the temptation, which was based entirely on twisting God's word, was at that point complete. The idea had come into their heads that what God said clearly isn't true, that there would be no consequences for their disobedience, And to top it all off, the icing on the cake is that when you take of it, when you disobey, you will be like God. And this was enough for Adam and Eve to rebel against God. Sin, which is rebellion against God and against his goodness and against his order, at that point entered into this realm. And in that moment, Adam and Eve died. They died spiritually. Their disobedience had caused a separation between them and God. Their relationship was severed. They were meant to live eternally in a perfect environment, but now, like a branch severed from a tree, they would only live for a short short time, and their end was imminent. And every man and woman who would come after them come forth from them carries that disobedience with them as well and every man and woman will die in our natural state and this is the problem for the world this is the problem of the cosmos for every man born in a their natural state when you ask the question what is wrong with this world there is a cosmic rebellion and the one who was meant to govern the world as a perfect representative of god led the rebellion he joined in that rebellion and all who came after him including you and including me joined in this cosmic treason because we were all found in our natural state in adam we all carry that corruption But when all seemed lost, this is the good news, God stepped in. Now the man and woman, they went into hiding. Uh, They thought we can try and fix our own mistakes ourselves, and so they sewed their own garments out of fig leaves, but this was an inappropriate covering. So God, the one whom they had wronged, while they went into hiding, he sought them out. And in his mercy, he took an innocent animal, an innocent being, and he slaughtered it symbolic of the price that needed to be paid to cover their sin and out of that innocent animal he created appropriate coverings for their nakedness and shame so through this innocent creature he gave them a symbol of what was going to be needed to cover their shame and then he made a promise there that he would put an end to evil by crushing the head of the serpent that deceived them in doing so, he would be wounded. He said that there would be a seed that would come forward, an offspring of Adam and Eve, who would once and for all triumph over evil. 
This is the promised seed that would crush the head of Satan and would redeem all of creation. That's the other part of it, redeeming all of creation to the way that it needed to be so that God's honor and glory would be reflected as he fully intended in a realm where his glory could be put on display, led by a man who would perfectly reflect him and rule and bless those charged to his care as God would. And from that point on, we see this battle continuing throughout the Old Old Testament, throughout the pages where we see Satan waging war against the offspring of Eve, trying to put a stop to the seed coming onto the scene of human history, trying to disrupt human history. But God keeps moving forward throughout every page as well, despite the opposition. When everything seems lost, God raises up one man and his family, Noah, and keeps the lineage of the seed alive and recreates the earth. When the entire world is turning towards idolatry, God calls forward one man, Abraham, to follow him, and he creates from him one nation, Israel, mine elect, to fulfill his plan of delivering the promised seed onto the scene of human history. And as this story proceeds, we see that the promise never changes, but we are given more and more understanding as to whom this seed will be so that we can recognize him when he comes onto the scene of human history. He would be the substitute sacrifice for Abraham's son. Remember the ram that was caught in the thicket that, subs- that became the substitute with Isaac. His head was entangled in the thorns. He would be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and takes the curse of the thorns on his own head when he would be lifted up on the cross. He would be the fulfillment of the law that was given to Israel. But unlike Israel, he would not rebel in the wilderness. He would remain steadfast and obedient. He would be the foreshadowed king who would sit on David's throne. He would be the son of man that was foretold in Daniel's vision, the one to whom every nation would bow down and serve, whose dominion would never pass away and whose kingdom would never be destroyed because he proceeded from eternity past and who Daniel referred to as the Ancient of Days because he proceeded from God himself. And the story of God's perfect plan to redeem mankind and to rule the earth perfectly through one man continues through every book, every page that is written by multiple people over thousands and thousands of years, every prophecy, every genealogy, until finally Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus the promised seed is now arriving on the stage of human history. And as Luke introduces him in his opening pages, he points out that his birth is miraculous. He goes into um, all these prophecies that are around him. But he also goes into undeniable detail to proclaim that he is fully human. He is a man, and yet he's more than any other human. As I said, there's prophecies that surround his entrance into the world. There's praises that surround him. He is the son of God, is what Luke is proclaiming here. In the opening pages, for instance, we're also told of the birth of John the Baptist, and we're giving circumstances about the birth of John the Baptist, and there is praise surrounding the birth of John the Baptist, and really, if you look at it, 
there's not too many other people who have that much attention given or detail given about their birth. And when scripture starts talking about someone's birth, you should pay attention because it's probably a very significant person, and he was. He was a forerunner of the Messiah. He was the last prophet. And according to Jesus, as far as people born among women, naturally, he was the greatest of all time. And yet, we often miss it because the, the account of uh, and praises surrounding John the Baptist are dwarfed in comparison to the account given of Jesus Christ and his birth. Because Jesus is more than merely a man. He is fully human, but he is more. And we know this because when Jesus came to be baptized and he steps in the water where so many of of the Israelites had gone to be washed when they were repenting of their sins and, and, and readying themselves to the Lord, he steps into the waters to fulfill all righteousness. And he's baptized into that same water which has cleansed others and he's identifying with the people's sin. And as he comes out of the waters, what happens? Heaven is opened up. The Holy Spirit descends upon him and rests on him. And there's a voice that comes from heaven. It is the voice of God the Father. And the proclamation is that he is more than just a man. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. And it's here at this point in the story immediately after that declaration that Luke begins to tell the final genealogy. And he doesn't begin as Matthew's genealogy does with Abraham and the promise given to Abraham works forward as most and every genealogy in the Bible up to that point does. He works backwards, starting with Jesus' birth, and he works backwards and he goes through the Davidic throne and he goes through the promise to Abraham, and he goes through Noah, and he goes all the way back to proclaim him son of Adam, son of God. And after thousands of years, after thousands of years, the promised seed, promised from the very beginning of history, has come now onto the scene to crush the head of the serpent through the son of God, who is also the second Adam, to fulfill everything that had been charged to Adam, son of man. And so now Jesus has been proclaimed son of God twice in Luke's gospel, and now it is here that Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit, and he goes into the wilderness to face our ancient foe and to fulfill all the righteousness that Adam had lost. It is written... And the word has never deviated. And it is fulfilled, and it will continue to be fulfilled. Before we dive in any further, it's, it's good for us to notice here how different Jesus is. I heard someone say recently, um, all of us use this phrase, at some point temptation is going to find you. There's something about, different about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus went to meet the temptation. And when the devil found him, as he did in the Garden of Eden, when the devil saw Jesus at his most vulnerable moment, he approaches him 
now we hear the third declaration of who he is when he asks, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. And again, I think most of us, we've read this uh, chapter, we we're familiar with it to some degree. Um, and we could do a deep dive, I think, uh, into specific applications here and spend hours and hours uh, looking at how Jesus is providing the prototypical model for how we resist temptation. It's good to meditate on all of those things. There's a lot that this passage um, says that carries into the rest of the New Testament, such as later on when James tells us to um, resist the devil. Or in chapter 6 of Ephesians, um, which I'm sure Pastor Will will spend several weeks on when we get to it. Um, but for this time we have remaining, I'd like to continue with the broader application of how does this fit into the greater arc of biblical history and the greater biblical story. The first readers of Luke's gospel will see um, immediately, they'll recognize the parallels because of where Jesus goes to refute the devil. He goes to the book of Deuteronomy. They'll see the similarities between Jesus' temptation and what faced Israel when they were in when they were leaving Egypt and they were in the wilderness. And again, Israel is God's chosen people, his chosen nation. And when the devil tempts Jesus to turn the stones into bread, he refutes the devil with uh, Deuteronomy 8.3. And in Deuteronomy 8, the Lord is reminding the Israelites about how when they hungered, they grumbled. But yet he's also telling them, remember that God provided for your needs when you were hungry, and he taught them to not only desire earthly appetites, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And when Satan offered him uh, the kingdoms of all the world, if he would worship him, and if you would, a shortcut to his mission to go to the cross, just take the shorter route, you don't have to go to the cross. He tempted him with that would just worship him and if you would a offering him a political solution to the world's problems jesus looked forward to god's better plan he quoted deuteronomy 6 13 to remind them of the time when israel wanted to go back to egypt to return to a land of idolatry instead of going to this future land of promise that god had promised them where he would lead them Bless them and provide for them. Worship the Lord your God, he said, and serve him only. They would have also remembered Israel um, with the third trial because after making it very clear that he would not worship Satan, he then entices him, as he's always done right, by what? Twisting God's word. Basically saying, you know, you really don't have to do everything that the Lord said you need to do. You know, you can, you can do what, what I do and just manipulate his word to fit your own agenda you can throw yourself down from this this pinnacle and you won't die and the people will worship you granted in an idolatrous way but they'll worship you and jesus quotes deuteronomy 6 16 do not put the lord your god to the test again as the israelites did in the wilderness and so this conflict served as a reminder to the first century readers especially of Israel's re rebellion and failure to remain faithful during their wanderings in the desert when they were tested. But not only that, again, remember that loose genealogy goes past Israel. It goes all the way back to the garden. And what we're intended to do here 
as well as recognize that the similarities between this temptation, the temptations that face Adam and Eve. Again, the twisting of the word, did God really say is in this passage? Take these stones and turn the, this bread is the same as saying, take what is not meant for your nourishment to fulfill your appetites and your desires. And again, throw yourself down from here. You will not die. In fact, you, you, will, you will be like God. And we're seeing here, again, in this passage very clearly that there is an adversary in the spiritual realm who wars against God and his people. And so when we do get to Ephesians 6, this shall help us understand what is written there, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we should be very clear on what the devil's timeless strategy is, that he wages war with each of us to question the authority of Scripture, to subtly twist it to meet our own desires and to deviate from what God has called us to do and to mix it with other worldly philosophies and blur the line between this and other worldly religions. You know, you hear it all the time. Oh, all religions. All religions are the same. All religions have elements of the truth and no one knows what is the mind of God. I mean, did God really say? Did God really say that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him and him alone, that he's the only way to reconcile a sinful man to a holy God? Isn't he the same as Muhammad or Krishna or Buddha or all these other people who claim to know God who are still in their graves or have turned to dust? And we must not only be aware of his schemes, we should never be passive. We must engage in the war against evil, yes, and it must be, not be done with earthly weaponry whatsoever and earthly schemes, but with godly power and godly wisdom. It must be done with Scripture. And not a Scripture that is twisted to suit what we want it to be as a means to our end, but Scripture as it is plainly and clearly stated in its whole context, not added to and not subtracted from. And this passage should make it crystal clear as to its importance and what is needed to stand upon God's Word and never deviate from it. But there's even a larger application here that Luke is driving home, and that it is this. There's only one man in the entire history of the world who has ever stood up to the devil. There's only one man who has ever been victorious against the devil. Chosen people, Israel, again, given every blessing of a nation to trust and obey God, they failed miserably, as did the first Adam. Even though he was created innocent and in a perfect environment, he failed. But whereas the first Adam and God's chosen people failed, the second Adam and God's chosen one 
did not. And his mission to redeem and reconcile a fallen and rebellious people. Do I do something here? <laughs> that bad, huh? She give me this, and then I, I want to. The second Adam did not fail. And his mission to redeem and reconcile a fallen and rebellious people and to move all of history even closer to the day of full reconciliation at his second coming is moving forward. And it's moving forward in the way he intended, although sometimes I would question it, right, in my lack of perspective, it is moving forward quite well. Despite, despite my misplaced concerns at times. And if you understand how this, this passage fits into uh, the greater story, then I think everything becomes clearer. After the Spirit comes upon him in his baptism, and immediately after the Spirit leads him to his first but not last confrontation with Satan, he begins to preach his message Jesus begins to preach his mission and is in the power of the Spirit. And he comes to his hometown synagogue and he picks up the great prophetic scroll of Isaiah and he reads again what is written thousands of years before, hundreds of years before. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is the Spirit mission. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the Lord's mission to right the world. And bring mankind back to God. It is first and foremost a message of reconciliation. And that is why ultimately this battle had to go through the cross. Where Jesus would die on behalf of the sins of of all mankind. That is the mission that he, our champion, would not deviate from. Even when Satan, who usurped Adam's authority, offered him a shortcut again to the kingdoms of the world, he did not deviate from this mission because he knew, as Satan knew, there's something even more important than all the glory of the world, the glory of God. And true worship to the one to whom worship is due. Satan said, worship me. Jesus said, no, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And it is of utmost importance it is of utmost importance that we realize what this mission is, where the mission is at, as well as where it is not yet. In opening the scroll, Jesus abruptly ends at the words to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You can read this in Isaiah 61. And he says that today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled, but that part of the scripture is what was being fulfilled, but the rest is yet to be fulfilled. You can read the rest of the words in verse 2 of Isaiah 61. The whole verse reads this. To proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. You see, in order to bring all of history to full completion and full restoration, which will happen in the future, evil must not only be defeated, 
and authority given back to the second Adam as intended to restore all things, and both were at the cross. Satan was defeated, and authority was given back to Jesus Christ. It must also be eradicated forever, and that will happen through judgment. And Isaiah's prophecy says there will be a day of judgment and perfect justice. But the Lord's mission for today is to offer mercy, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The ancients would have understood this. Uh, when a king would conquer a or reclaim a territory, he would offer often offer the inhabitants of the land to which he had conquered and retaken a chance to switch their loyalty, to kiss the ring, if you would. And those who would return their allegiance during a time of the king or lord's favor were offered and granted mercy, and the rest would either fall to the sword in judgment be thrown into exile for their treason against the crown. Be very wary of adding your voice and joining with other voices that are demanding justice that is mixed with human wisdom and for earthly gain in a day of mercy. Since Satan is a liar, I'm pretty sure that his offer to Jesus that he would give him all the kingdoms of the world was really just a bait and switch. Um, but I'm not entirely sure. Because I think he would have been perfectly fine to allow Jesus to institute a health and wealth gospel. Where there are no more wars, uh, no more strife and injustices, and no more hunger, as long as it meant as long as it meant that he would not go to the cross and find a way out of the grave. And that men would still, even though they had longer lives, healthier lives, full-fed and fattened lives, as long as men would still die in their trespasses and sins and spend eternity apart from God, unreconciled to him in hell. If the solution to the world's problems that you're hearing is ever devoid of the gospel and devoid of a message that repentance is needed. <laughs> and to be quite honest, everything you hear on the news these days, all the solutions you hear, almost all of them are, right? And if it's easy for the world <laughs> and worldly wisdom to get behind, there's a good chance it just may not be from God. While there will always be temptations for us to take a shortcut to the ultimate day of God's justice, that day, rest assured, is coming where everything will be set right. In Revelation, we see a scene. We're told of um, John's prophetic future vision where God is about to bring about his uh, history to a close and a day of judgment and justice are to be executed. And there's another scroll 
that will be brought forth. And John was told to eat of this scroll. It's a, it's, it's a scroll of, of God bringing about his justice. And he ate of it, and it was sweet because we all de desire justice, right? At the same time, too, when he realized the ramifications of it, that judgment would come upon this world, it was bitter to his stomach. But the scroll will be brought forward, and what it is, it's a title deed to the earth. And it's a title deed to all of history. And a mighty angel brings forward the scroll, and in a loud voice he proclaims in all of heaven, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And John starts weeping because no one, no one who has ever lived, not even any member of the angelic host is worthy to reclaim this title deed to the earth. And he begins weeping because all this hope he's thinking, you know, is everything I lived for, is it all for naught? But as he does, one of the elders speaks to him. One of the elders from, from the throne says, no, no, John, there is a champion, Christ the victor. And he tells John, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And as Christ, our victor, approaches the throne and takes the scroll, all the elders around the throne acknowledge his right to claim this deed, and they bring up a cry, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth and following this a cry rings out from all of heaven worthy is the land who was who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and the cry continues until John's even hearing cries coming from the inhabitants of the earth declaring to him to who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. There will be a day. It is written, <laughs> there will be a day when all of heaven and earth are fully reconciled to God. It will be fulfilled just as there will be a day where every man must give account for his life and his deeds. But for now, we still wait for the day of the Lord, and we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be upon all men. And if you have yet to be reconciled to God and forgiven of your sins, if you are, are still um, living for yourself and trusting in your own righteousness to come to him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the true and better Adam, is offering you a full pardon. And he's offering that to everyone born of, of the first Adam. All you have to do is ask him for pardon. I repent of my ways. I realize I've been in rebellion against you. I repent of my ways and I turn back to you and trust in your wor work, your intercession for me when you died on the cross instead of me and you bore the wrath of God and his judgment that was intended for me. 
and he offers it freely. At the end of Luke's gospel, uh, he spoke to this man who was crucified with him, a dying thief on the cross next to him. And when that man believed that Jesus was the one, that he was the Messiah, that he was God's payment for sin, he cried out to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. I know who you are now. Will you forgive me as well? And Jesus tells him these words, today you will be with me in paradise. The paradise that was lost in Eden. Jesus is saying, there's a way now here to get back to that paradise. And it goes through the cross of Christ, the victor, who defeated death and has risen and is seated in heaven at the right hand of God. And for those of us who are the church, who look forward to that awesome day of the Lord and remember that this day is still coming, it's important for us also to remember the mission we are on and not deviate from it. In his last words in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says what? All authority, all authority, the authority that the devil usurped, <laughs> authority that God intended, all authority has been given to me. And he tells us, the church, go. This is your mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what? All, all, every word, all that I have commanded you. And gives them a promise, and lo, I'm with you always. The promise is moving forward still. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And this mission that Jesus is on with the Holy Spirit is our mission as well. In Acts, his final words, he says, is what? And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That is our mission, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor call other people into the joy and the hope and the promise that we have. It is written. It is fulfilled. It is being fulfilled. And there is one champion, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Christ the victor, who will fulfill it all so that God may be all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you that you were victorious against our ancient foe, Lord. We thank you for what you have called us to do, to abide in you, because apart from you, we can do nothing, Lord. Help us to realize that. Help us to trust you, and not just trust you when times are good, but even when times are difficult, Lord, and trust in every word and promise that is given to us. And when we fight, Lord, help us to remember that there is a victor already. And as we take up our spiritual elements to fight the evil one, Lord, help us, Father, to do it knowing that Christ has won the victory. May we abide in you and trust in you always until the end of the age. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.